I cannot tell you how happy I am to be here this morning with you, just opening up scripture and looking at the next scene in the life of our beloved Jesus. I am so excited about it. If you're a, our guest today, first of all, welcome. Uh, if you're joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. But you may not know that since the last time I stood here, my youngest son, Jaken, who's 18 years old, that was three weeks ago that I stood here last, he had a, an event of, that was a serious, serious brush with death. And has come out of it, not just with his life, but it appears we are speedily on our way to total healing and full recovery. And yes, we are... And I'm happy to report that I'm not just being overly optimistic, as I is often, I'm often accused of being. Um, it's just that what we have seen uh, and what our medical professionals around us have seen and have told us, well, it just, it just gives us a fairly muscular faith in what we haven't seen yet. But I got to tell you, what we have seen, our cup is overflowing. I mean, it is overflowing and we would have been happy in proclaiming God's praise if we had, uh, I'm doing this because he's sitting right there. And uh, if we had the results we had now in like months, we would have been praising God for a miracle. That's, that's where it was. And so we are praising God. I'm still processing um, the dramatic contrast between what we were experiencing on February 8th and 9th and the circumstances then and the circumstances that we are in now. Well, the circumstances we had on February 10th and 11th. I'm still processing the contrast. But, but let alone what we have now. So uh, bear with me as I continue processing that. I hope, I hope to, to you, God, that we do justice in giving you the glory for, for, for that change, for what has happened. I'm telling you, almost every medical professional involved and that walked through this with us is just, they're just saying there's just no medical explanation for the, the, the clip at which we are hitting milestones. And, uh, and so we just want to declare that God's miraculous involvement and give him the glory for that. I know I won't do justice to it, but I'll spend the rest of my life trying and, and doing my best. I also know I will not give adequate thanks to the first responders and the nurses and the doctors and the caregivers. You guys are agents of life willing to work on the fringes of death right along with us. And it enables things like this to happen. And, and as the weeks progressed in increasing measure, those medical professionals, especially the ones that were working with us in the, uh, in the ICU. They would just come after their 12-hour shift break and they're on their next shift and they would just see the progress and literally say things like, this is not us. This is nothing that we're doing. And we give God, we agree, God was involved, but it was no less than what they were doing. And we witnessed God cooperating with these heroes um, and facilitating something amazing. And I will never ever be able to thank you enough. There's a cost that those women and those men pay to, to be involved with us in those kind of things. And I am so grateful to all of you, the ones that were involved in us and that, that do it all the time. 
um, for, the, for you being willing to pay that price. And, and this church, your, um, your prayers, first and foremost, your, I mean, goodness, how many tears can a guy cry? You know, it's like I've, gallons have been filled. I should be out. But your prayers, first and foremost, but everything else, your words, your, your meals, your uh, gift cards, your... your, your this day and age, your posts, I mean, all of it has combined to just really be such a blessing. And I do not wish anyone to be on this side of something like that. But many of you have, many of us have. And if you ever are, I'm telling you, you want this church in your corner helping you. Um, you church are exceptionally gifted and skilled at walking with people into chaotic darkness and bringing that all-important light of Christ. And I now know. I now know. So thank you for that. <sighs> okay. Um, so I feel like I need to pray, but I'm scared if I pray, that's all we'll do today. Because I have so much to thank God for. So I, have, I haven't scripted it, but I'm going to limit myself to a prayer of a verse well, a prayer based on a verse that I have connected with through this. So let's bow and let's pray to God. Thank you, God, for, for your love for us, for your grace, for your care, for your attentiveness. And God, uh, I've connected in a special way with that with that dad in, in Mark chapter 9 who had a son with a life-threatening condition. I've really connected. I've reread that many times. Jesus, you, you, he came to you, Jesus. And he asked for your help and, and you gave it. And that verse 26, after you gave it, it says, the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. And it's verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. You don't have to deliver that kind of experience to us or to anyone to deserve our glory and our honor. You have already stolen the sting of death. But on this side of things, death is still stings and it's hard. And so I thank you. With all my heart, I thank you. For, uh, for standing my son up. Thank you. We thank you. And we praise you. And we give you the glory and the credit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So if y'all can bear with me through this, I am excited to be honoring God's son after he saved mine in such a literal way. So we are in this awesome series in the book of Luke where we're following Jesus in the way that Luke came in and, and he says he put together the, he did all his research and homework and he put together the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ in a orderly fashion. And so it's been really cool to, 
to go through this. And I'm thankful for Jerry and then Adrian stepping in and just keeping this story going the last two weeks. And I'm so glad I owe Dimitri also a debt of gratitude wherever Dimitri is. Thank you, Dimitri. He, he taught for me this morning when I had mentally bitten off more than I could chew, chew a little bit, getting back into things. So appreciate it. And, and all of staff, I could go on and on. I'm sorry. Thank you to everyone. So if I was going to summarize what we've, what Luke has done in the first two chapters to introduce his story, okay? So authors do this. They, they introduce it. The introduction of Luke is all through pregnancy, a couple of pregnancies and infancies of a guy named John and Jesus. He's used those to introduce what he's about to unpack. I would, I would say it this way. This is what he has said so far. A new kingdom is emerging. A new kingdom is coming and emerging. And it's, he's saying that it's not a kingdom like you would normally think of from men. Okay, that men establish. It's not a, a rule in a way that, that men uh, decide upon and, and set up. It's from God, he's saying. It's different. It's not from another place. It's not a, another kingdom coming in and imposing its rules and its ways on another land. It's not from another place, an earthbound place, like, like Rome had done to uh, Jerusalem and, and Russia is now doing to the Ukraine. It's not coming like that. It's from heaven. And it's invading earth. Like Jesus will say about 16 chapters from now, he's going to say, my kingdom is not of this world. It is from another place. And so it's clear that Luke is setting it up, saying this kingdom, this way, this, this, this culture that is coming, that's emerging, it's going to be different it's different in nature and it's different in priorities than anything normal earthbound thinkers and nations can comprehend. It's different in nature in that it's borderless. It's borderless. And it's the first and only kingdom that I know of that is inclusive of anyone and everyone. So it's different in nature. It's also different in its priorities. And he's already just through these birth announcements and infancy stories, he's already elevated that the priorities of this kingdom are different than anything you've ever experienced in any culture and even in any religion, including the Jewish religion. This is coming in and it's turning some of those priorities upside down and on their heads, specifically in regards to power and in regards to social standing. It's lifting up the marginalized Specifically, he's made it clear that the low status of, of women, of the poor, of the too young or the too old, they're all being elevated in these first two chapters. And in regards to behavior, in regards to morality and the way we act and what we do and the decisions we make, it affects that too. The norms are being turned upside down. And so in these two chapters, through two birth announcements and births, Luke is setting us up to meet, in chapter 3, the king of this kingdom, who from this point forward, he's going to just unpack what this kingdom is like. And he'll do it by telling us what this king is like. That's what's happening. That's how he set it up. And so 
In chapter 3, we have the ministry of John, probably the best example and, and outline of the ministry of John, who was born first and was this forerunner to this king. That's why these were the days of Elijah that we just sang. Okay, and there's a connection there that I don't have time to go through with you today. And then we have the coronation of this king in the baptism of Jesus. And so that's what I want to focus on here today is the baptism of Jesus. I want to look at it in order for you to get Luke's orderly introduction to this king as he's coming into his kingdom to rule and to reign. It explains in large part what this kingdom is about, that he's writing about. And simultaneously, I think by looking at the baptism of Jesus, I want you to know why you either were or should be baptized yourself. That will just come naturally as we look at this. So before we look at that, there's one little note that I want to go back. The last verse of chapter two. Okay, just the last verse. There's a, it contains a truth that's really precious to me and that I think many Christians do not honor enough. It contains a, a, an aspect of this Jesus that Luke is careful to elevate that I think is important and lots of Christians, and including me for decades of my life, miss out on. And by missing out on this, we miss out on some of the benefits of what we have in Jesus. It's this verse. It's Luke 2.52. It says this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the first two chapters, like I said, are all about the birth and infancy of Jesus, with the exception of just before this verse, a few verses on the childhood of Jesus is all we got when he was 12. And that's beautiful and great. And then this, this encapsulates from 12 to 30. This is all we got from Luke. He, he summarizes everything from Jesus from 12, age 12 to age 30 in this one verse. And this is my, this is why I wanted to point out, this is my go-to verse to elevate the idea that Jesus was fully human. Okay? Most Christians in my circles get that Jesus was fully God. They've, they've embraced that. And Matthew, he's the one that goes to great pains to say, this is God. Okay? He's in the birth stories. Luke doesn't, but Matthew calls him Emmanuel. God with us. He's fully God. But Luke is the one that makes sure we know he's also not just the son of God, but the son of man. And that, and that he's human. You see it right here. And this is important for us to know that Jesus operated with the same toolbox that you and I have in order to live the life he lived. Are you feeling me? I get tons of pushback on that when I teach this in, in all kinds of circles that he's that. But look at this verse. It's important here. Otherwise, look at it. How does, G, how does God grow in wisdom? If he's not full, that's a fully human thing to do. God doesn't need to do that. Humans do that. If he can just pull the God card, then how in the world does he grow in wisdom? How does he grow taller physically? That's what N.T. Wright says this word stature means. He got bigger. He got taller. God doesn't do that. Okay? Humans do that. And my favorite one is, how does God grow in favor with God? Right? That's, that's a human thing. He is, yes, he's fully God. We talk about that a lot. Luke is making it clear. Listen, humans, he's one of you. 
He's one of you. And this is important because otherwise, like if he just gets to pull the God card to live the way he lived, to live the powerful life he lived, then what in the world are we doing trying to imitate him? Right? He, why did he go often and pray? Just to be a good example? So he had a fake prayer life for us? No. Why did he often withdraw from the crowds and go to lonely places to pray unless he needed to? Because he was fully human. And so that's an important aspect that I, I, I'm, I'm expecting we will unpack more as we go through Luke. But I didn't want you to miss that verse here. All right. So as we turn the page to chapter 3 of Luke's story of Jesus. Um, like I said, I wish we could. We're, we're, we're not going to look at this awesome, impactful ministry of G, J, John. Where he's, he's called. He's, I better be careful. He's calling for a repentance. Right? A repentance that this coming king deserves from us. He's calling for a life change. A conforming of our lives to kingdom values. That this coming king, you're going to want to have it. He's he's worthy of it. He's not saying earn what Jesus is about to do. We'll learn from this day forward that that's impossible. He's just worthy of it. He's worth it. Just like you might... You might, Jake and Mike clean his room before Molly, his girlfriend, comes into town for a visit, right? It's not like she's going to break up with him if it, you know, there's conditions. He just, it's, she's worthy of it. Same thing. Jesus' coming was worthy of it. And so that will be all I say about that somehow. And we'll just look at the baptism. So let me just get the verses in Luke, and they're early and late in the uh, in this chapter, starting in verse 2, it says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, that's, that's what's associated with the baptism of John. That's what I want you to notice. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. When, then a little bit later, when all the people were being baptized... Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. So that's Luke's version of the baptism of Jesus. Now over in Hebrews 6, and I did a sermon series on this many years ago. There's, there are... Baptism is one of six what are, what are called by the Hebrew author elementary teachings of Christ. Okay? No, it doesn't say that. It says elementary teachings about Christ. It has six doctrines that are elementary teachings about Christ. Baptism is one of those elementary teachings. And it's ne- he doesn't say of Christ, teachings of Christ, though the baptism was a teaching of Christ. That's not how the Hebrew writer says. It says it's a teaching about Christ. That's first and foremost what I want every single one of you to get about baptism. It's about Christ. Baptism is not about baptism. Any more than the Lord's Supper is about the Lord's Supper. Baptism is about Christ. And the call to be baptized, and there is a call to be baptized, it is not a call to baptism. It is a call to Jesus Christ. That's the appropriate way to think about it. So this is the first thing I want you to remember. And now I want to answer three questions, kind of in my examination of this baptism of Jesus. One, what is baptism precisely? 
Two, why do we baptize? Why do we practice this? And three, what does baptism mean? So what is baptism? This word baptism comes from a Greek word. It's called baptizo. When this uh, Greek Bible was being translated into English, they didn't, bab- they didn't translate it into English. If they did, every time you read baptize, you would read the word immerse or immersion. Okay, So this was the immersion of Jesus. That's what the baptism of Jesus means. They transliterated that word from baptizo. That just means they took a Greek word and made it English. So they kept that word and, and said baptize. And they got the reasons for that. But what's important for you to know is baptizo means immerse. So perhaps you have seen a Christian baptism before. You saw one this morning. Right? That's what it is. It's when a person gets into a body of water and then allows someone from the body of Christ to dunk them, to immerse them in that water and then bring them out of that water. That's it. That's what Christian baptism is. So that's question one. Question two is, why do we practice it? Why do we baptize? And for me, the answer to this could not be simpler. First of all, Jesus was baptized. We've already covered that. Second, Jesus used baptism in his ministry. He used it in his ministry. John 3.22 says, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And then third, Jesus commissioned his followers to use baptism in their ministry. It's part of the great commission right at the beginning. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So for followers of Jesus, that's the end of it. It's the beginning and end of it. That's why we practice baptism. Even if we're a little fuzzy on what it means, we are not fuzzy on whether we do it or not. Christians are disciples. That means we want to be like Jesus. Jesus was baptized. Christians want to minister and do ministry like Jesus. Jesus used baptism in his ministry. Christians want to follow what Jesus instructs. Jesus instructed baptism in his ministry. So that's the answer to question two. It's just all about Jesus. Everything's all about Jesus. That's why we baptize. So the rich part of this is really what does baptism mean? So there's lots of beautiful ways to describe it that will come later in the story of scripture, right? Paul unpacks some beautiful images that are very descriptive, great applications, the washing away of sin, the, the reenactment of the, uh, of the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection. There's a lot of that. There's lots of beautiful things about it. But we start, we really get our definition of what Christian baptism is by looking at the baptism of Christ. I think that's where we start. This was his coronation and the inauguration of this kingdom that we're a part of. So it makes sense that we go here. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record the baptism of Jesus. And the first point I want to make from something we've already read is Jesus came to John for John's baptism. So we already know associated with baptism, because Jesus accepted it and received it, is baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so those two things are connected to baptism. All right, pull over and park here. If you're like me, and you're saying, Jesus, 
took on a baptism of repentance, which is life change, right? Life change, behavior change, align your morals with kingdom morals, you know, all this stuff. And forgiveness of sins, right? The, the cleansing of the things you've done wrong, right? The forgiveness of that. Then you push back about that. You push back on this with Jesus getting baptized. What? Jesus, Jesus had no life changes he needed to make is our belief. That's our theology. He had no sins that needed to be forgiven and washed away. So you resist this, right? You resist that he was baptized with a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, even though it's right here in scripture. And you wouldn't be alone. John the Baptist resisted Jesus being baptized with his baptism as well. He totally, you're right in line with him. It's over in Matthew where it's recorded, but it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John, like us, tried to deter him, saying, what? No, I need to be baptized like you. And Do you come to me? And here's what should be shocking to us. Jesus corrected him. He said, no, it's not, it's not right that I shouldn't be baptized with your baptism of forgiveness and repentance. He says, it is proper for me to be baptized by you. Now, it's not for the same reasons, maybe, as we, we need to repent and we need to be forgiven, but he says why, why it's proper. He says to fulfill something, to fulfill all that's right, to fulfill all righteousness. So he said, it is right for me to have a baptism of forgiveness and repentance because it fulfills something. So what is it, what is it fulfilling when he steps in that water with John? I think Luke gives us a clue in his account that we just read, when it says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Isn't that interesting how Luke says it? He wouldn't have to say this. Why not just turn up the volume on the baptism of Jesus and the coronate? No. He said, all these people are being baptized and Jesus kind of gets in that crowd too. Isn't that interesting how he says that? We're elevating Jesus here, but he just puts him in the crowd with people. Sinners. People who need to repent. He's just numbered in that crowd. Why? Because that is what he came to do. I mean, pretty soon, three years from now or so, from this scene, Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of all the people. Right? We, we get that. He, need, he didn't sin, but he got crucified for that. He died, he was buried, and he was raised from that. Is it hard for us to connect that, that he got in that water for our sin, for our repentance, that he was connecting again to all the people? And if you need a verse that he fulfilled from the Old Testament, it's Isaiah 53, 12, where it says, Therefore, talking of Jesus, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. He was right in that crowd with the people, counted right among with them. He was attached to and numbered with everyone who needed forgiveness and repentance, life change. So those are the first two things that we know are connected to our baptism, is forgiveness and life change. But then something happened that had not happened in any of John's baptisms to this point. Something happened, and what happens next is why we call Christ's baptism the first Christian baptism. 
And that is, and we've already read it, the Holy Spirit of God descended onto Jesus and then the Father in heaven speaks from heaven and identifies Jesus as his son. And so we see two more things are added to baptism right here at the coronation of Jesus. And as a result, four things are now connected to Christian baptism. And they speak loads about this kingdom that Luke is starting to unpack and tell us has emerged. It says, it is repentance, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and then sonship or daughterhood, identity. Identity is connected. You're in a new family. So contained right here in this elementary teaching about Jesus, because that's what this is about, we see, and I just say it this way, the whole gospel message, you are forgiven. As scripture will go on to say, your sins are washed away. You get to change your life. As scripture says later, the old's gone, the new has come. Been raised to a new life. It's different now. Third, you have power. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit, we learn in scripture, is the power behind what enables Jesus to do what he did, including being resurrected from the grave. You have that spirit, that same spirit. You were baptized into the name of that spirit. And last, you are a new person. Specifically, you're in a new family. You've got a new dad. You are a son or daughter of God. And with you, he is well pleased. This is why in Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Just the first. First of many brothers and sisters, it says in another place. So we've answered in these three questions what baptism is, uh, why we do it, and what it means. I hope we've answered why someone would be baptized. Because who doesn't want this? Who doesn't need and want Jesus? Who doesn't want Jesus? Why would any? Maybe, maybe now that we've talked about why you would want to be baptized, we need to address a couple of reasons why Christians might deny baptism. Might they, they're not resisting it in Jesus, they're resisting it in themselves. And it's amazing how often I come across that. And just reading scripture, it just baffles me. Why would you do that? And I've, I've heard a couple of common reasons that I want to address here. One, I've heard this many times. My parents baptized me when I was young. And I don't want to offend them. I don't want to discount what they were doing in, based on their belief. And so that, that's, that's a loving reason if there is one, to not be baptized as a grown adult. Okay, that's it's a loving read. I don't want to offend my parents, but I, what I say to that is, it's great that your parents proclaimed their desire for you to belong to Christ back then. Because that's what that is. That's them proclaiming their desire. I, I liken it to what Mary and Joseph did in the temple that we read about in chapter 2. They came and they declared, this is, this is God's child. And they were doing what their tradition kind of dictates that they do but that doesn't hinder Jesus from once he's making the decision to make the decision himself and say I want to give my life to God as well 
And so he's not being offensive to mom and dad by saying, I'm taking ownership of this thing. And I, I like to say, you aren't either. You aren't either. You're not being offensive about that. So I hope that helps if, if that's a, a, tr- a struggle. Now, I hear others, and this may be more common. I grew up in a church where faith alone is what saves. That's what I was taught. Faith alone is what saves. And they were taught that they don't need to be baptized, right? Like, like, like they, they'll even call the baptism a work. And they're so, they want to be so careful, and I want to be careful of this same thing. They're so careful that they don't want to give us any credit for our salvation because there's nothing we can do to be saved. And so they associate baptism as something, well, that's something we can do. And we don't want to attribute, you know, salvation effect to that event that you can do. And so I think that's a, a, an unnecessary and false argument to me. Uh, and in fact, I've never thought to say this before until this time. I've got lots of thoughts on that, but this is one. I think that's one of the reasons, like to call this sacrament a work that we do to earn something is just, that, that, that's not right. It's a sacrament. It's a sacred act. And not only are we not doing something to earn our salvation, we're not even doing it when we get baptized. Every example in Scripture of someone being baptized, always someone who can decide for themselves, by the way, every single example, is them submitting to someone else in the body of Christ doing it. Like, I, I, I've never thought of this before, that maybe that's why. It's a, when we say we were baptized, we never say, I baptized me. I did that. It's not even our language. We say, I got baptized, or I was baptized. And so even the, the form that we use and we see in Scripture is there's no chance that you can say you did it. You received it. That's the whole thing with the kingdom. Through belief and through faith, we receive it. And so I would never want to diminish the role that this sacrament plays in, in this in this move we make to receive the kingdom. I never want to elevate it. I never want to elevate it to the place that only Jesus can live as the salvational issue of our existence. That's Jesus. But I never want to cheapen it, to preach against it, to, to say it's so unnecessary, you, you shouldn't even do it. And so I hope that, I hope those kind of things help. There might be other reasons and I would love to talk to you and any of us would love to just explore this with you if you have a reason that you resist baptism there it's interesting to me because resistance to baptism is always in the form of some resistance to some intellectual understanding of it it's never resistance to forgiveness I can't find anybody who doesn't want that to repentance It's not resistance to the need to change our lives, to align it with a more abundant way of life. It's never resistance to power, to Holy Spirit power. And it's never resistance to being a part of the family of God, being someone that he looks at and says, you're my girl, you're my boy, and I am so pleased with you. No one resists that. And that is what baptism is.
That's what is connected to baptism. And we learn it right here in the baptism of Jesus. So I'm going to end here with one of Paul's descriptions of baptism that I have particularly affinity, particular affinity for after this last week. Um, but let me ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room. Listen, if something's in you, you have a question about baptism or you want to be baptized or you just need to talk about this or anything else. That's what these men and women are doing moving around the room. They are saying, I'm interested and I'm with you and they will help you with whatever thoughts or questions or actions you'd like to take. We would love to walk with you in this. So here's Paul's description. There's so many I could have chosen from, but this is in Romans 6, starting in verse 3. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, with Jesus, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And there's, I can't wish anything on any of you that is more loving than to wish upon you the life that Jesus died to give you. When Jesus was baptized, he was pre-acting the very event, the death, burial, and resurrection. We sometimes call it the watery grave because of this. He was pre-acting the death, burial, and resurrection that he would live through. And when we practice it, we are reenacting that death, burial, and resurrection that he lived through. It is so beautiful. But even more beautiful than that act is everything that Scripture attaches to it. Nothing short of Jesus himself. And it's yours. It is yours to receive. I'm not saying it's just effortless. It's not. Jesus says, believe me. That's the work of God. It's work to believe because it's that good of news and we just have struggle. It's what I'm dealing with in response to a couple of weeks ago, trying to process such good news. It's unbelievable. And yet it is ours. And I bet in your life, like he has in mine, he keeps calling you. He keeps doing things, wooing you to believe. At some point, I encourage you, believe and receive the good news of Jesus. He is calling you to something higher. He's calling you to something deeper. Let's stand and let's sing about that. And if we can help you in any way, please come.